Hello and welcome to The Whole Life, the podcast that seeks to connect the Christian story with pretty much everything. I'm Paul Woolley. And I'm Grace Fielding. And today we're talking about comedy and the godly origins of the BBC. Yes, we've got two big subjects to discuss today. It was Charles Dickens who wrote in A Christmas Carol that while there is infection in disease and sorrow, there is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humour. Well, who could disagree with that? Comedy is part and parcel of our human experience. But what does the Christian story have to say, if anything, about comedy? And comedy features significantly on the BBC, which is 102 this year and was established with a mission to inform, educate and entertain. And that's the second topic of our conversation. How did the BBC get started and what contribution did Christians play in its development? Well, the link between those two subjects is embodied in our guest. He studied theology at university. He's written for BBC One's Miranda and Not Going Out. He presents Pause for Thought on Radio 2, and he's produced a history of the BBC. He sounds extraordinary. Who is he graced? He is Paul Carenza. Um, Paul, it's so great to see you today. Thank you for joining us on The Whole Life. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to chatting. Absolutely. So we have, as Paul mentioned, um, so much to discuss today. So why don't we start um, with... For you personally, Paul, why comedy? Um, you know, it's one thing to enjoy making people laugh. I'm sure we all try to do that, if not successfully. Um, but it's another thing to choose to do that for your job. Um, so why don't you start by telling us a bit about why you do what you do? Well, it's a it's a it's a deep question to begin with, isn't it? Really, because we like uh, to start. Deep I think if you it's one of those it's one of those things. If you analyse it, you think, why am I doing this? Oh yes, this is a bizarre thing to do, isn't it? But uh, I, and I think most comedians I know would sort of say, actually, they know they have friends who are far funnier than they are. So I think it does take a certain mindset to try and embark on this as a, a attempt it as a career. But for me, I sort of fell into it after I tried, I did a theology degree, as you say, I did a year at drama school thinking, oh, I'm not quite sure what to do. Oh, I like acting. Turns out I can't act. So I did stand up comedy as an evening class, just as a one off thinking if I enjoy this, and if it goes okay, I can just put it on my CBC. I've done it once, maybe get some comedy acting roles. And but I loved it. Um, I'd never thought of doing stand up. I liked writing comedy. Um, in fact, my first comedy writing was sketches for my church, really. It was sort of the church drama, um, unpacking a Bible story. So when I was sort of 13, 14, I was um, very, I've only really started reappreciating actually how those grown ups in my church growing up gave me that chance, which was fantastic. If it weren't for that opportunity, I don't know if I'd be doing this today. So I enjoyed writing comedy enjoyed acting in comedy, enjoyed watching stand-up. I'd never thought of putting all that together. And of course, I do a bit of stand-up now, but I also do comedy writing for sitcoms and things. So it's all just really about, I suppose, trying to cheer the world up, make it a better place and, and spend a bit of time trying to lift with a bit of joy, if you can, I suppose. Mm, we definitely we definitely need that. Um, so I, for one, am thankful for comedians um, like yourself. But you mentioned that you um, obviously studied theology um, and you sort of somehow along the way ended up performing and writing comedy. Um, could you speak a bit to kind of the link between those things? How did one lead to the other? Is there a link between mm. them or was it slightly more just fancy less theology a bit more comedy <laughs> yeah I think there's the two are the two ways of looking at that I suppose one one is, is my particular journey which was uh 
doing a degree in theology because I was fascinated by it, and I still am. And then finishing that course and thinking, what what now am I? Because it wasn't a vocational course. So while I had a couple of course mates who did then go on to uh, be ordained and, and the like, um, it wasn't, we had equally as many atheists and people of other faiths on our course as well. So I, I, I at university though, I discovered theatre and I discovered acting. We have a, it was not Nottingham University, which is lucky to have its own theatre company and just the chance to write and perform and, and, and do those things there was, was really what I discovered at uni. Um, so in that sense, it was falling into comedy, I think, falling into acting and performing. But in the way, though, that theology is about um, puzzling out the world and working out uh, how we relate to, uh, to, to God and to our faith and to, and to our creator, you know, do we have a, a distant creator or one who's working in our lives? And I, I know certainly which one I think it's the latter. Um, but therefore, given all that, it's, I mean, it's, it's one long series, I suppose, of if that, then this, if, if God is good, if God is God, all bets are off. If God is God, could Jesus have died and risen from the dead? Yes. Could Jesus be an active role in my life? Yes. Um, could, what, what sort of outlook should I therefore have given, given this and given uh, his, his teachings? So I suppose in that sense, then you can forge those links, I think, between theology and, uh, and, and comedy. But, but that's partly because I think theology brings us to all sorts of things. You know, you can look at, you could ask the same question of a lawyer and go, they go, oh yes, well, justice is a core part of, of this. So for me, I'm going to say, yes, I think that comedy, humor, mirth, um, but especially trying to find joy in things and trying to spread joy and trying to cheer people along our way through life, um, I think is important. But I've increasingly realized, I think that that area is important, trying to lift everyone as opposed to when I probably started out as a comedian, you know, a bit of a scrappy 20 something, Although I was a, a Christian then, I think I probably was doing some jokes that maybe punched down a little bit, or I'd have a go. I, I was never kind of Frankie Boyle or anything, but I might do a joke that mocked a celebrity or something like that, which, mm. you know, I'm not going to say they're all necessarily off limits, but at the same time, I look back at some jokes, I thought, and I think, what, is it, what did that add to the room? What did that add to the world? And yeah. I think it's a constant thing of thinking, what, what words are we putting out there? And what's the weight of those words? And, and, and how does yeah. that improve things? No, that makes a lot of sense. I think I think we're going to come a bit later to sort of in your own experience. Um, what does it mean to be a Christian in this world of comedy? And um, yeah, perhaps maybe there are certain things that are off limits um, and not. But we will hold that thought yeah. um, because um, in your sort of exploration of um, you know theology and co- comedy, and I love actually the way that you um, it's almost like you've been primed for this podcast perfectly because the whole point of this podcast is for us to be making those links between seeing how the Christian story um, has a role to play in everything. There's a connection, there's a link um, in, in every area of life, whatever sector that is. So um, thank you for giving it a great plug um, <laughs> at the start. Um, but where would you say that comedy features in the Christian story, in the narrative um Maybe this is where you're going to tell us that actually Jesus loved to tell jokes. Um, maybe not. Maybe we don't know. Um, but yeah, where would you say that comedy features in the biblical story, um, but also, I suppose, um, in Christian experience? Wow, yes. Uh, lots of possible ways to unpack that, I suppose. But if we just look at um, the, the Bible story and, and Jesus in particular, I think 
there's a couple of things. Firstly, I think I'm not going to say Jesus was a was a professional comedian, but I think it's probably an hour to one. You know, Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. You can't hold a mount without some stage skills, and you know, and and in terms of the great orators of history, you know, I think we. <laughs> We give Jesus so many titles, son of God, son of man, savior, Messiah, somewhere way down the list. There's also one of the greatest speakers of all time, you know, in terms of communicating and the use of parables and the way of of growing this movement. Um, you look at the words of Jesus, you know, you look at a red letter Bible and you can just see the use of, of yeah, I think humor. And although we may not laugh out loud at it, but the whole sp- you know, speck of eye in someone else's, a plank in your own, all of these things. I mean, not only that, of course, he he's from a carpentry background. He's doing stories and one-liners about wood and building, you know, specks of dust and things in the same way that you speak to, you know, there's the parables of, of the sower speaking to people who work in the fields and things like that. I had this theory, I don't know if it's ever more than a theory, but if you go back a couple hundred years, industrialization. And our, our our jobs changed a lot suddenly within a few years to the degree that for hundreds of years you had people working in fields and farms with their hands and you know carpentry and fishing and things like that. Those same jobs that Jesus' first disciples had were, were true for hundreds of years. And then industrialization comes along and now we're all IT managers and data handlers, whatever it might be. So you have a, a slight disconnect with those some of those earlier stories that maybe people would have had until sort of eighteen hundred or so. I don't know, but so I think there's partly that, and that maybe the slightly d- deeper area you could look at as well is that actually Jesus as God come to earth as man, essentially. You look look at observational comedy, and it's almost doing the same thing. It's going, look, you know that thing that you do that you think is just you on your own, and you feel like a bit of a muppet. Well, I I do that as well, and you know what? We all do it, and, mm. and God coming to Earth, living our lives. You know, it's kind of saying, look, I mean, I've I've been there, I've done that. I'm with you on this. So, in some sort of, I mean, that's a very unacademic way of saying. It. I'm sure there are experts who can tell you a lot better than that. But it's just a way of, I think, for me, of looking at some of those elements of Jesus' um, story, really, and thinking, actually, yeah, this is someone who's who's walked the walk with us really and can relate to us using parables using these stories using humor and paul if we were going to go back into the biblical story a little bit kind of further uh, start a little bit earlier and think about who god is and what it is to be human what place do you think comedy has in all of that um to what extent is being able to laugh and see the absurd and laugh at ourselves and the world part and parcel of being human would you say mm, yeah i think it's uh, it's it's vital really and you, you often think of that separation of comedy as being something that is uh, just for comedians or comedy writers but as you said at the start we all use humor in our everyday lives you know you've had a bad day you come back you tell a funny story about well here's that funny thing happened whatever or you wallow in it a bit and someone else picks you up by saying a thing and we relate to it and often that is about as i just said really you know that whole experience of of almost there but for the grace of god go i you could actually argue that the fact we've all been there we've all had these sort of similar moments so when you do things like well, without one trying to deliberately tie in work i've done um in comedy writing but with something like miranda where she's constantly giving these examples of failed dates or the time that you know your dress gets caught in a taxi door and, and people respond to those things going oh that's so embarrassing but do you know what i did a similar thing once or a friend of mine had a thing like that 
So by saying that we all do this to get, we're all in this together, those sort of elements, I think. And um, it's a really minor little point, but when I'm, I teach screenwriting a day a week um, at a university, uh, something we looked at the other day was the pratfall. It's a really minor thing, but little detail, right? When you get something like um, Del Boy falling through the bar or Dawn French Vicodibri falling into the puddle and then getting up again, you know, all of those things are good pratfall. They disappear out of screen, but they come back up again. And it wouldn't work if they disappeared out and that was it. What we want to see is people fall over, but get up again. We want to see a, basically a little bit of resurrection, I suppose, in our lives. You know, you want to see that people actually, yes, it's the, the bad stuff isn't where you stay. You know, you come up the other side again. And, uh, and I think that's part of the human condition. You know, we all have those ups and downs uh, through life and, you know, lately, whether it's the pandemic or, or the state of the world at large, you know, we're often in, in a bit of a down, you know, and, um, and we have to accept and acknowledge that. But then in those times, that's when people actually turn to comedy more. You can see people wanting kinder, nicer, uplifting things on television. Generally, there's a trend towards that thing. The bleaker stuff like The Office, you know, and those sort of things that came in some of the darker comedies of the, of the early noughties was popular because we had a bit of a boom time. You know, we were happy enough. But as soon as we're on a bit of a slump, we all need a lift, you know. And I think whether it's humour, whether it's um, that experience of faith, you know, as well, that's all part of carrying you through that, I suppose. And would you think, therefore, that this is a time for redemptive comedy? Is that essentially what you're saying there, that in our cultural moment, that that appeals particularly, whereas in a different cultural moment, a kind of different sort of comedy might appeal? Yeah, I think it, I think it is to a degree. Um, I, I'm not just in comedy, but you can look at the structure of films or books or stories or whatever it might be, and the way we have that uh, that story arc of a character, you know, the, the, the hero's journey and those sort of things, uh, books that have been written about, where you have that structure of a character going on a chain, reluctant change. You know, we don't want to change, and yet we're forced to do it. So whether it's Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter or, 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 or a character in a rom-com or whatever, they don't want to change, but they kind of go on this journey and it's a redemptive journey. You know, it's a journey where they go through this thing and by the end of it, there's a sense of gaining an experience um, and often that com- coming home changed kind of things. So you often end, the end scene is often mirrored from the start scene, but we've kind of gr- gained and grown a little bit. And, uh, and sitcoms certainly, it's, you look at a thing like whether it's, I don't know, Blackadder or Faulty Towers or whatever, and so often in those... They're like little parables because the person who needs to be humbled is humbled and arrogance doesn't have a place in it. And sometimes it's the Baldrick character you need to listen to to realise that the, the foolish people have a bit of wisdom after all. And all those things. So they are sort of modern parables, I think, in a way that just tell us a little, in a secular way a little bit about um, actually human behaviour and how we can hopefully improve and, um, and be kind and be nicer, all those things, you know. Do you have a favourite comedy? Well, if I, Blackadder and Faulty Towers, I think, were the two that I grew up loving, and I could never. In, I forget, forgive the name drop, Clang, but I was at an event and, <laughs> um, uh, in the comedy world, and someone asked me that question: "So, which is your favourite sitcom?" And I said, "Well, I always go between Blackadder and Faulty Towers, but I'm going to say Blackadder." And a voice behind me said, "Good choice," and I turned it with Richard Curtis just there. So, um, <laughs> goes to show, you know, got to look around before you answer that question. Yeah, amazing. Um, I think it was Robert Frost who said something like, if we couldn't laugh at ourselves, we would go insane. Um, and if he didn't say that, he he should have done. Um, <laughs> did, do you think that's right? I mean, what what do, what do you think he's on to? Is he on to something there? 
Yeah, I think part of uh, yeah, you have laugh at yourselves. Absolutely, it's a bit of self awareness. I mean, I, I I'm, I'm British. I love a bit of self deprecation, you know. And sometimes, but equally, I, I went to America, did some shows there uh, on stage, and it took a, 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 a moment or two to work out how to play this room because. Every I was like twelfth act on, and every other act on was like, uh, "Hi, I'm from Denver. Yeah, go Denver." And hi, I'm from uh, Mississippi. Whoa, go Mississippi. And I walk on and go, and I'm from Britain, and it's rubbish. And they'd all just stop in their tracks, and go, "What? What's this guy talking about?" And I do some jokes about Britain and things, and they were like, "No, you've got to boost yourself. Come on, you've got to be like Denver, Mississippi, and say how brilliant you are." So, self-deprecation didn't kind of land there in the same way. But yeah, I think um, uh, it shows a bit of self-awareness, doesn't it? If we can laugh at ourselves, and I think often, again, that thing of who is the butt of your joke? You know, if you're walking on and having a go at people, whether it's someone in the audience or minorities or people who are, um, you know, that whole punching down thing, um, I, I think that there can be a great role. And, you know, we haven't done a lot lately in this country on satire, apart from, you know, have I got news for you? Bumbles along. But, um, you know, Mot the Week and the Mash Report and things on television like that uh, have been cancelled, generally speaking. So it doesn't kind of feel like a boom time for satire. Maybe that's because politics is so difficult how do you lampoon you know trump and <laughs> boris johnson things when you've got comedians sort of they, they, i'm not saying you know nothing political whatever your side is but they they know how to do comedy they can speak they can do the jokes for us you know it's very tricky to do jokes about that so um yeah but punching up i think comedy has a place in that I, you know i love going you know, we'll talk about bbc in a bit but go back to things like that was the week that was in the in the 60s you know the um yeah which david the, frost and david frost yeah well, yeah we've gone from richard robert frost to david frost Look at this. <laughs> uh, that was good but yeah that whole again punching up or at least talking about politics in a way and saying actually i think we can I think these people need a bit of laughter laughing at yeah. you know, humbling you know so we can laugh at ourselves and i think we can better better to do that than, than punching down anyway I suppose the thing with um, that was the week that was was that it was it was so innovative, wasn't it? It was breaking new ground, and there was a sense that it was preaching truth to power, in that it was probably part and parcel of a, a shift, a reaction against deference to kind of you know poking fun at those in power. Um, whereas maybe sometimes I've sort of reflected whether sometimes the Mash Report and others sometimes almost cross the line between a kind of preaching truth to power and and rightly kind of um, bursting the bubble of those in power to a kind of um, slightly corrosive angle um, that, that just becomes quite negative and dehumanizing. Do you think that's fair or do you think I'm kind of taking it too seriously? No, I, th- I think it's quite fair because the thing is individually some of those shows uh, had moments that I... I enjoyed some of it and I didn't enjoy other parts of it, which is all part and parcel of it, I suppose. Uh, but there can be a tendency to, and there's also that whole area of using your platform as a soapbox, really. Uh, so some of those shows, if you just get people on who are just going, you know, having a rant, but without adding the comedy part of the rant too much, you know, that can often be a tricky thing. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I cut my teeth on, uh, radio comedy doing the topical show so I used to write for the news quiz uh, the now show dead ringers things like that it's all slightly different flavors of of taking a a sideways look at the week's news whatever it might be but we'd always I'd always try and be sort of cast the net fairly equally and between all the different whatever's going on in the news you know and it, whoever's in power of course you'd probably have a bit more of a go at them so at the minute you know obviously um, with the political state we've had in the last what, decade and a half or so has been largely conservatives in power. So therefore, you could say it's more left-wing comedians have because you want to have a go at whoever's in power, generally speaking. 
Um, but yeah, it, I, I do think there has been that shift, certainly in, in the use of in the way satire has come across um, since those days. And as you said, it, it, the deference it was having a sort of having a change from, I guess, is that post-war thing. You know, for the late forties and fifties, there was that sense of deference to that because we were just coming out of that of that particular crisis. You know. Yeah, interesting. Um, now, Christians, the relationship between comedy and Christians isn't always an easy one. Um, do you think there are any subjects that are off limits when it comes to comedy? Um, I think I'm all for freedom of speech, basically. And I think in theory, I, I, I've seen some great comedy about very difficult uh, subject uh, areas, but often by people who've experienced those things and they're using humour to... Um, to humanise the issue in a way, or whatever it might be that they've, their experiences are. So I, I think, in theory, I think there's almost nothing off limits. But in practice, it takes so often such skilled, uh, um, a skilled pair of hands to actually tackle many of those that I think most people shouldn't be having. You know, and I see a lot of comedians, especially new comedians, just thinking, "Oh, I'm going to be outrageous and do jokes about this extreme topic or this particular controversial issue." It's not enough, you know. You, 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 it's it's almost like don't try and handle those things until you realise that actually uh, it takes a lot of skill to try and do that. And and just be, I, I find increasingly trying to be aware of the audience you're speaking to. And I'm all for freedom of speech, but I'm also all for freedom to not hear it. And that means that people can walk out, people can turn off, and people can, you know sack you from your tv show or or count you know i don't, <laughs> don't really want to dwell in cancel culture too much or anything but i don't believe believe in uh, this the whole cancel culture thing of of broadcasters at least in a way now more than ever it's you're almost uncancelable because youtube exists and podcasts exist so you don't in the old days if if you didn't if you weren't recommissioned for a show you just went okay that's the end of that particular job Whereas now you can actually go and you can keep doing that show. You can make it yourself. You can put it online. You can broadcast yourself nowadays. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think there's that element as well, maybe. Do you think Christians have sometimes taken themselves too seriously? I'm thinking it's always easier, isn't it, pointing to examples that are a while ago. So if I think of the way that Christians responded to Life of Brian mm. um, or Jerry Spring of the Opera. So they're two different examples where a significant number of Christians were unhappy and expressed that unhappiness and um, boycotted, protested. Mm -hmm. um, how would you kind of view that? Do you, do you have a way of sort of framing that and kind of working out what you think? Um, yeah, it's a tricky one. I, I went along, when Jerry Springer, the opera came out, I was, I guess, in my mid-twenties and I've been doing comedy for a couple of years. And I was writing comedy as well at the time. And I was fascinated by it. Obviously, it wasn't the sort of thing I would write, but I was fascinated by this debate around it. But I suppose what I did want to see was more debate around it, which I kept not finding because I mean, uh, I went, there was a church that I saw who had a whole evening event. This is the days before Zoom. Now we do it on a Zoom thing, probably. But they had a whole evening event uh, when they, they said there would be this debate on Jerry Springer, the opera and its appropriateness or, or lack of it. And I went along going, great, let's, I don't know who was debating, but let's go and see this debate. And we got there and essentially someone had just 
pre there was no debate as such it was just pre-printed letters of complaint uh, filled in dear bbc and you just sign your name and then off you pop that was it so there wasn't really um a chance to sort of talk about it really and not not that i'd have been there in defense of it but i was sort of thought the issues surrounding it are interesting enough to work out to what degree that should be i suppose you could argue should that be on public service broadcasting for example that's one area you know um also that issue of should we uh, condemn it without seeing it you know or do we just blanket refuse to engage with these things um and you know yeah life of brian as well there are um, i watched it again not too long ago and uh, i was I had not seen it for many years. And of course, there are many areas you go, oh, yeah, the Pythons, they did their research, you know, this idea of of, of false messiahs at the time. And they never say that actually this was Jesus. It's, you know, someone else going on at the same time. You know, Jesus is always just off camera to a degree. You never actually sort of see that until the very end. That's and although I'm happy singing and always look on the bright side of life, if it was a football match or whatever. Suddenly that scene really got me a lot more because as the camera zooms out at the end credits, suddenly part of me thought, ah, they've kept Jesus off screen this entire film. I'm not saying I have a particular problem with Jesus being on screen because, you know, Jesus and Nazareth and Passion of the Christ and all these things. But as you zoom out, you think he's there. He's part of that. And um, uh, and some of the elements they're trying to bring in there, I wasn't uh, wasn't a fan of. But I'm not necessarily going to write off the entire thing because of that. And I think there's a, you know, so there are questions about to what degree do you dismiss a complete package of a thing? Um, or do you use it as a chance to talk about these things? I, I'm all for using these things as a chance to engage and converse and debate a bit more with people, you know. Interesting. Um, now, as people know, uh, Paul, um, well, Grace certainly does, I have this little list that I'm, I'm drawing up of phrases that I find incredibly annoying or totally meaningless. And one of these is um, God has a sense of humour. Um, and um, I don't I mean, we could talk at some stage about why I react to it the way that I do. But um, but challenge me on that. I mean, do you what, what do you think of that? Is, is that one of is that a phrase you use? Uh, it's a phrase I only use In when people judgment ask. Judgment if it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a phrase I only use if asked that when asked that question because I do when I do I do stand up comedy shows um, around churches more than the comedy circuit now actually uh, at the minute and because um, there's only about eight comedians who can do church gigs I suppose but often then uh, I'm doing a longer show and then we have a Q and A thing at the end and that question often comes up it's probably the most asked question actually. I, do, I think didn't realise I apologise it's not so, at all so predictable not a no it's more the fact that it's clearly a vital question that is being asked by the <laughs> nation right now so it's more that you're, you're you've got your finger on the pulse there the voice of the nation there absolutely amazing thank you well done um, so um, but I don't have an answer particularly I I, I, would, I mean I always say yes generally speaking because um, I'm generally I think humour is in everything I think humour is God given. So, but does that mean that God is a comedian and a joker? I don't think so. I think there's so many other aspects. You know, God is God, you know, so therefore um, it's, uh, he encompasses all of these things. You know, we can choose to talk about, you know, certain elements of life where you can go, oh yeah, I think he's got a sense of humour because of of this, that and the other, you know. So, um, and it's often in the context of situations we find ourselves in, I suppose, isn't it? You know, you think, oh, he's got a sense of humour. Look, look what happened to me the other day or... You know, I think of um, the fact, you know, I've, I've had a, I mean, the true story is I, I've had a fairly um, unusual medical start to life. And I've I've um, had some internal organs born on the outside and things like that. So I've got no belly button as a result. I've had countless operations and things like that. But I choose to turn that into sort of comedy and humor and a chance to sort of talk about these things a bit. And um, 
yeah, and I could look at that and go, I was born a, a mess, you know. Um, but I don't. I never dwell on that stuff. I just think of like, oh God, has got a sense of humour because like, he's given a comedian um, no belly button. Great <laughs> hours of material from that, you know, and um, uh, and all of those elements. So I, I kind of choose to go, you know, if, if those times when <laughs> go back into Monty Python now, whenever life gets you down, you know, <laughs> grumble, we'll give a whistle. So. Uh, <laughs> That's always that, yeah, that outlook, I suppose, you know. Yeah, amazing. Um, well, shifting from comedy to the BBC, although, of mm. course, as we've said, um, part of the original purpose of the BBC is to entertain. But what got you looking into the history of the BBC and what have you discovered? Well, yeah, so I started this as a, a lockdown project, really. I had a book, which I have here on my shelf there, uh, by a chap called Arthur Burroughs from 1924. And um, I found it in a eBay, I think, or a charity shop years ago. And it sort of sat on my shelf for ages because I've worked for the BBC as a comedy writer and as a radio presenter a little bit and different parts of the BBC and always been a bit fascinated by it. So I had this book and I, in lockdown, I started reading it. And it's basically the history of the BBC when the BBC was a year old and so it's, it's not a big book. But as a, the, the one particular statistic fascinated me, which was when it mentions that for the first BBC Christmas in 1922, there were 30,000 listeners and four employees. And I thought, who were those four? That must be a story. Did they get along? Spoilers, no, they didn't. Um, but the more I have investigated who those four people were, and then indeed who the first eight employees were and so on. And you can, I, I can certainly appreciate now the... Uh, those little chance encounters, those little differences. So Arthur Burroughs, who was the first voice of the BBC, the first newsreader, um, but also four years earlier had the idea for broadcasting, really, when everyone else was using radio to just send messages between two people like walkie-talkies. And he thought, well, let's use this to send concerts and parliament, maybe, and things like this into people's homes. And it took a long time for people, you know, well, four or five years, which isn't ages, I suppose. But it took a while for anyone to listen to him, really. Uh, but he wanted broadcasting used for the higher side of culture he wanted poetry and to better ourselves especially coming out of the first world war as well that idea that actually we can use this to spread peace um, and burrows when he left the bbc over after nearly three years because it grew a bit too big for him you know he liked it when it was four people not a hundred people let alone now and he was tasked with setting up european broadcasting so the bbc model sent out there uh, in that image so to speak to use a biblical term but again, the idea of using it to spread peace throughout Europe, 20s and 30s, that was his mission, even suggesting that we share broadcasting throughout Europe once a week and maybe have a, some kind of a song contest across Europe, Europe and, uh, uh, and essentially planted the idea of Eurovision. Uh, and then the Second World War came along and he knew his ideals of what you can use broadcasting to, to spread peace. That was never going to stand up to, uh, to fascism and, and Nazism. And then he died before Eurovision came along, so he never got to see that dream. But that's you know that's the first voice of the BBC, and that's just one little thread I've sort of pulled on to find all that route. And a lot of that, that's not in history books. That's academic theses and things that I'm finding online. So the idea was that I was going to write a book, which I'm still trying to write, but along the way I did a podcast about it, and I'm doing a live show sort of recreating some of those early BBC stories as well. So I, I find it fascinating, the origins of these things and how we – the legacy is what we now have today. Um, and it's, it's all got a starting point. But religion, right there at the start, you know. So, um, yeah, that was a vital part of a, a pillar that it was sort of built on, if you can build on a pillar. I'm not entirely sure about that. 
<laughs> I'm sure you can. Yeah. Um, Paul, you mentioned, yeah, religion right there at the start um, as part of the orange, origins, the orange, <laughs> the origins of the BBC. Um, perhaps you could um, sort of share a bit about um, when we think about sort of were there, were there Christians, key Christians who contributed um, to the origins, but then also the kind of development of the BBC? Mm. Well, the most famous one is John Reith, um, the uh, the Christmas Reith, you could argue, uh, different sort of <laughs> spelling. But he, he was the first general manager of the BBC, but he didn't start the BBC. He joined when the BBC was about six weeks old. He didn't know what broadcasting was. He got the job without having ever heard radio. And even for the first two months of his job at the BBC, still didn't even bother listening to what it was doing, didn't have a clue really what it was about. But as a result, in a way, by coming in from a completely different background, um, he brought something very different to it. So you've got these people early on who are using it to sort of have these concerts or poetry recitals or experts just talking for half an hour on the motor car or exciting things like that of, of an evening. But Reith then brings in this idea of public service broadcasting, saying, well, we, we must use this to elevate the public conversation in some way, to inform, educate, and entertain. And uh, and indeed, his very first order um, when on joining the BBC was he asked Arthur Burroughs, that first voice, the, of, um, the person whose idea radio was in the first place, really. Um, he, he, said, he said to Burroughs, well, what is radio? And Burroughs explained to him, this is what broadcasting is. And Reid said, right, well, you must you must go and hire a vicar then, you know, for, for Christmas. It's coming up. We go and book a, book a vicar. And here's a list of a few. And he gave Burroughs a list of names and numbers. And for the first um, almost year or so of the BBC, they had a, a Sunday, uh, sort of a, a ring-fenced Sunday schedule, uh, which was just Reith's favourite preachers, essentially, um, until they worked out how and what brand of religion they should put across in terms of actual uh, broadcast church service and the like. So that was very carefully managed. So the first um, broadcast service on the BBC was from St Martin in the Fields, because in the First World War, that was a, very much a church associated with with charity and openness, and people were familiar with it. So it was meant to be the nation's church in a way, uh, rather than going sort of down lots of different denominational routes. So yeah, Reith, right from the start, really, really wanted to use this uh, to spread um, spread God's word, really. And uh, he even got the job at the BBC because of a church service. He, he came to London for a job in politics, went straight to church, and the minister read from uh, Ezekiel, I think it was, saying, would anyone here stand up for the, the gap in the land? Who will stand up there and be there for the soul of the nation? And Reith, all six foot seven of him, stood up and went, yes, I will. I just don't know what to lead yet. So um, then two weeks later, he saw the job advert for the BBC job. So all of that, just those chance encounters, you could argue, or yeah. God's plan, you know, you decide which. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I suppose there's some of the kind of the positive influences that um, Christians had in those kind of early days. Um, but would it be fair to say that um, Christians and the BBC also have perhaps a slightly more complex relationship or have had, um, could you speak a bit to that sort of why is that? Where does some of that come from? Um, yeah. Mm, yeah, a tricky one. I think, I mean, over, I'm particularly dwelling mostly in sort of pre-World War II BBC when you can see, I mean, Christianity is the the dominant, um, the dominant expression of religion on the air completely, you know, until after the 1950s, really. So you do get mostly that sense from, from the word go. But um, and, and in the 30s, you had more religion 
on the BBC than drama, for example. Uh, so that was that that popular. And the first popular radio padre, as they called him, um, Reverend Dick Shepherd, had a an op- a state funeral with a uh, I think a hundred thousand people passing his coffin. This was so so beloved at the time, you know. So that was then, but this is now, sort of thing, you know. So things have changed. We're in a very very different uh, state of affairs with the BBC, with public service broadcasting, than it was, you know, even in sort of the Second World War or the fifties or the sixties. So. Um, in terms of religious broadcasting, you get more uh, of talking about religion from the sort of 60s, from the 70s onwards, really. Different faiths, of course, being addressed. And, you know, it's meant to be a mirror of the nation in a way, I think. So you're meant to be able to see yourself on television. So I think it's, it's quite right that you have this uh, this broad church, so to speak. But, um, but the thing is, also, I think once you get choice, I think that's a major factor in the BBC story as well, that for the first 10, 20 years or whatever, there's one thing to listen to is just one, you know, maybe a local radio station and a national one, but that's about it. But as soon as you start getting television and channels and multiple channels and saying, well, you could watch this or you could watch that, they're no longer thinking of what Reith wanted, which was the very best of all things that have been created. He wanted the very best out there for people uh, and, and, and a very focused attention on what that was. But now, of course, you know, going back to things like Jerry Springer, the opera, at some point, the BBC and other channels go, and actually, you know, we should put on a variety of things and not everyone will like it. And that's the thing. So therefore, of course, you get people complaining about exactly what is being represented on television. I mean, I'm fascinated by the way, not just the BBC, but religion generally is, and Christianity, so often not quite reflected on telly in the way, you know, watch Midsummer Murders. The vicar always done it, you know, or or they're dodgy in some way, you know. So it's very rare to see a person of faith represented in fiction on television in any sort of authentic way. But when you do see it, you know, things like EastEnders, you know, whether it's Doc Cotton's faith or or last year they had a, a, a terminally ill character who was baptised at home. Beautiful episode, beautifully done. I'm not an EastEnders fan particularly, but I saw those elements. So a, 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 an authentic um, communication of faith on in, in broadcasting, I think, is, is rare but can be wonderful. And I think we should do it more better rather than these rather sweeping generalizations of what religion must be. Because it, it just amplifies, all of those things amplifies it more. If you amplify a falsehood, it's just out there further and further. So I think those, I'm all for us being a little more careful what we put out there to try, try and get it right, you know. So almost sort of going back to some of the, the heart behind the origins of, you know, putting out probably less, but what is being put out is very carefully curated and and done really beautifully. Um, I suppose, yeah, a challenge in in today's world where we like choice, don't we? But then we get annoyed about it. (laughs) Yeah, it is. That's the thing. We like that. But then also we have so much choice at the minute beyond, you know, I mean, when I grew up, we had four channels, then five. That was okay. And then now it's not just about Freeview and the many channels that, you know, it's every YouTube channel, every podcast, every, I mean, podcasts are great, of course. Um, But, uh, (laughs) but, you know, then I think the danger we're now getting is the amplification of an echo chamber that you can see on social media or in uh, some channels and some YouTube channels, things like that. And then if you've got this sort of tribe almost who are just backing that, a, a sense of tribalism in broadcasting, I think is, is something to, be a bit of a bit of a question mark over that because we like what we like and therefore we believe what we're here you hear people repeating things that may or may not be true but it's an opinion but it's reported as fact and before you know it you get trouble so i think um yeah i'm all for those that's what maybe why i like the bbc in the 
pre-World War II days when it seems simpler. <laughs> you don't have all of these um, rushing to just give opinions so much and, and presuming your listeners or viewers will will, will, will you know, amplify it if they want to. Yeah. Um, we've spoken a little bit about the the sort of aim of the of the objective of the BBC, um, sort of historically, um, and and perhaps today as well, being to kind of inform, educate, and entertain. Um, yeah, would you say that this is something the BBC continues to fulfil? Um, do you see any kind of holes in it, or perhaps won't we swerve more to one of those three um, rather than sort of a broad spread? Um, yeah, how do you think the BBC is doing? Well, I think. Yeah, it, I don't think it does it in the same way, certainly. But in a way, to be fair to them, they've got to try and keep up with a modern media world. Um, and they've not, I don't think they've claimed to inform, educate and entertain for quite a while, which is a shame, probably, because those were good things to aspire to. But, you know, the educational part, for example, used to be uh, BBC schools programmes. And now we do get BBC Bite Size and things like that. But it's not quite done in the same way as it used to be. Um, we don't I don't think have that quite same way of using public service media to educate people quite in the same way we're used to. Um, but I think those who find them, if, you, if you're fascinated by things, you know, I, I, I'm an, an ambassador for podcasts completely. I'm, I'm doing some uh, writing at the minute on some uh, different parts of cultural history and things and things that I was unfamiliar with. We are in a great time to go and find out and, and you know, you, you get multiple sources. You can go and find experts and academics and people who've written, who know their stuff delivering it in an accessible way via podcasts. Brilliant. Thank you for that. You know, So the BBC doesn't really fulfill those things in the same way. It does seek to entertain, certainly, but I think it can sometimes seek to do that in a... It's got to try and compete, compete with ITV and now Netflix and things like that and Sky. So there's an argument, you know, they, they have to make cuts at the BBC and we know that. Um, and as we speak, the government are negotiating with further cuts with the BBC, essentially uh, an increase the license fee, but not a huge one. So what goes, you know, and for now, they've chosen to sacrifice local radio um, and portions of news. Um, there's an argument that things like drama, they spend a lot of money on drama when actually they're trying to compete with Netflix and, and the like, who have almost bottomless buckets of money. You know, should you be trying to do that? Because all you're going to end up with is a show that looks all right, but maybe not quite as glossy as Apple TV or, or the like. So could that money be better spent, you know, keeping local radio? Local was is a, is a nice thing to do. Because in times of the pandemic and, and the like, you, you could see the way it was literally helping people getting prescriptions from their pharmacies and things like that. And Netflix won't do that, you know. So there's that. I love, you know, Netflix and the like as much as, as the next person for entertainment, for drama, for binge watching and box sets. But there are aspects of um, the BBC. You know, they have these uh, studies done. They've done a few over the last few years, actually, where they take a group of people, 100 or 200 people, who are against the licence fee. And they say to them as an experiment, okay, no BBC for you for a month. Uh, and see what you think at the end of it. And some half the people don't last a month. Because they go, they have to be honest. They're going, oh, well, I listened to a little bit on the bit of news, bit of sport on the weekend. All right, I did just check the BBC website, or um, my kids wondered a bit on BBC Bite Size or whatever it might be, or radio, whatever. There's always these little aspects. You go, well, I just, I'd like a little bit of that. You know, that's quite useful. I do check the BBC weather app now and then, but apart from that, you know. So those things, when it's trying to um, 
to do so many great things. And I think so many of the good bits of the BBC are like things like local radio, which don't have, you know, millions of listeners, but nor should it, because you're trying to appeal to, you know, in the old days, it began by sending out weather reports to farmers in Norfolk and the like. So it was useful, you know, but it's a changing world. I get that, you know. And just one final question, Paul. Not all of us are comedians and not all of us work in the BBC or in media organisations, but are there lessons that you've discovered along the way that you think are really helpful for people in whatever walk of life, wherever they are, in terms of lessons that you've learned through what you've done, whether it's in the comedian's uh, comedy space or whether it's in discovering more about the history of the BBC? Um. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. I think this, this, there are always those areas, like almost like a compass in a way. You sort of end up gravitating towards an attempt at true north, I suppose. And you know, I'm not perfect in any way in all of these things, but I think trying to raise the bar is always a nice thing to do. Um, trying to do something maybe a little bit above, and that's not just about broadcasting, but conversationally speaking as well. Just trying to to raise. Um, the standards a little bit and raise our our tone and our level and being kinder where possible rather than because it's so easy to be dragged down by a world that often seems to be not that when you're looking at things like social media and the like and it can feel you know I've had to stop myself I, if you I, I'd hate to think I would never do a reality show because if they were trawled through my timeline and suddenly oh but he did say this thing years ago and I think oh what, what did I say I probably said a thing then that wasn't particularly that so I'm trying more and more to go no don't get bogged down into those areas of um of of being so negative and critical give people the benefit of doubt more um gathering more in in person where possible I, I things like not going out for the first two three series of that with uh, Lee Max sitcom we'd write it in person together in the room and since season sort of four to 13 we do it all remotely now we just do it all um send it in our bits and pieces uh, as we write them from, from wherever we are um and it's but when we've been there in person you, you just think oh yeah those little outside the box moments that just come in because you're just chatting with people being human and being nice and being in a room together they can be really you can miss those otherwise i think so i think talking more and gen- truly listening to other people and not just standing there waiting for your chance to speak you know i'm trying to do that more um generally whether it's in a comedy club you know and someone's Sometimes, you know, someone heckles from the audience and you think you've got a, a good put down you can use, but you listen to what they're saying. And actually, you know, you you can have some some sort of all, all sorts of world changing conversations if you actually listen to people and realize that that person is in some sort of trouble or whatever it might be. Or that person there has some sort of unmet need. You know, there's just being having a conversation. I'm all for that more and genu- genuinely listening and just trying to be human with people, really help them along their way. I think that's. That's what comedy tries to do, I suppose. You know. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Um, yeah, I know I found this such a, a brilliant and um, fun, but also very interesting conversation. Um, if you'd like to find out more about Paul, what he's worked on and what he's currently working on, um, you can visit his website, um, www.paulcarenza.com. Um, and Paul, am I right in thinking, I think you mentioned you've also got a podcast. Um, do you want to tell us a brief bit about your podcast? Yeah, sure. I did. Um, this, so the podcast is called The British Broadcasting Century, and it was intended to be uh, a, a brief podcast about the origins of the BBC and sort of now we're 
80 episodes in and we've just reached 1923. So sometimes you just end up on episode <laughs> on one day and look at that. But it's particularly because in the early days, you've got all, there's loads of landmark things. So we've, some things we've unearthed include like the first drama for broadcast, um, which has been forgotten for years. And I've, I found a copy in the British Library and it's been there for decades without anyone touching it. And it's about, it's a, written by a woman who was, um, completely ignored at the time so things like that just I've become a bit more feminist I think since doing this podcast because it turns out there's loads of forgotten women at the start of radio that have been ignored by the history books so yeah I'm, it's a bit more of a mission now I think it started out as a little bit of fun that's the thing with podcasts isn't it before you know it, they take over your life and you think, oh, this is... we're not quite at that point yet Paul so don't tell us that any second now come. come on it's gonna kick in <laughs> Well, it sounds like um, listeners have got plenty of content to catch up on then um, heading over to your podcast. So um, yeah, I think you can access it on all of the usual platforms. Um, But Paul, yeah, from us, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. Um, So thank you very, very much um, for your time. It's been, yeah. Thank you both. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Paul. Grace, what did you think? Um, I thought it was brilliant, Paul. I, I I really liked Paul and I think the way he spoke about um if I'm honest what can sometimes be a bit of a I don't know I feel like when you speak about comedy it can sometimes feel like it's a laugh a minute and and I love the fact that he clearly is genuinely a very funny man but actually was able to speak about what he does with a sense of um sort of realism as well and and you know talking a bit about sort of um especially the whole side of of how he likes to bring you know, spark a bit of joy in people's lives. I thought that was, I know that, you know, that was the start of the conversation. He spoke a lot about that's some of what he always tries to do and, you know, speak in a way that um, I guess brings a bit of, of hope and an uplifting tone to what can sometimes feel like, yeah, quite a depressing world, um, especially these days. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and yeah, I think, um yeah, obviously we um, we had the pleasure of hearing a bit more from Paul um, a while back. We had him at one of our staff events, didn't we? And he did this quite sensational sort of talk through, not talk through, sing through, I should say, the whole entire Bible in a hilarious way. And actually even just seeing him do that, it made me, made me think actually there is there is a place for comedy, even in the way that we sort of hear about and understand the bible um and that was something i've never seen before so it was interesting to chat to him today and i suppose get a bit more of a sense of of what he thinks in terms of you know bible christianity comedy and how those things fit together um so i thoroughly i thoroughly enjoyed it um what did you think yeah i thought all of that i thought um really interesting drawing the connection between the role of comedy and, and storytelling and sort of pointing out sometimes the absurd, but also just pointing out that which you notice and which is different. And um, I thought that was an interesting observation he made. Mm-hmm. I also thought the observation he made about context being interesting when he was talking about his experience in the States. And I was reminded of going to see Shakespeare once in the States. And it was the most Countercultural experience I have ever had, which kind of sounds like a ludicrous exaggeration, but it truly it was utterly countercultural. Okay. And part of it was that I'd never heard Shakespeare in American accents before, so that was just different. Mm. Um, and then the other part of it was seeing that the audience laughed at different points from a really? kind of typically British audience. Um, and that therein was a little clue to differences in sense of humour 
um, between two countries, you know, separated by common language yeah. sort of thing. So I thought that was interesting. I thought his challenge at the end to raise the bar was a really good challenge mm. because I think um, regardless of who we are, where we are, what our context is, um, we can all do that. So there's an opportunity for us all to always seek to kind of raise the bar and not go for the cheap cheap mm. laugh that is often at the expense of else. someone else um but equally not to become kind of overly um serious or, or or not be willing to laugh at ourselves i suppose that could become a could potentially be a danger within our own cultural context that there's if you like an inability to to see the absurd and and to laugh at ourselves and i think he held he holds all that together really well doesn't he yeah he he definitely does i was quite surprised um when he we asked him, you know, are there any topics that are off limits? And I know he referred, didn't he, back to kind of, you know, in his earlier days of comedy, there might have been perhaps slightly kind of lower blow, uh, lower blower, lower blow jokes that he might have made or, or yeah, as you say, sort of poking fun at, at subjects that now he perhaps wouldn't. But then when we asked him later on, you know, as a Christian, do you feel like there are any subjects that are off limits? And And he sort of, well, from my understanding, basically said, no, but if you do deal with them or engage with them, it needs to be done with kind of skill and care. And um, yeah, I, I found that challenging because I suppose I probably came into the conversation and I think I'm sure this is probably annoying for someone like Paul, but you know, you sort of think, oh, Christian comedian, it will be, you know, um, really light and, you know, a bit fluffy. And, and actually that's not, you know, I, th- I think it was interesting when he talked about actually some of those, you know, some of those TV shows, um, some of which I have to say were probably before my time. So I ne- I clearly need to go and uh, have a bit of a look. I can't believe that, Grace. I know, I mean, they're sorry. classics. They're, they transcend time. I had heard they? of them, but I didn't feel like right. I could, um, with all authenticity, say that I'd watched them. <laughs> um, anyway, I know what I'll be doing tonight. Um, <laughs> but, you know, how actually some of it is is actually, you know, completely... I suppose shielding ourselves from things and and actually but then still having a very strong opinion on them. I don't know that that I think he made a really interesting point and maybe challenge to us as Christians of not to say, you know, let's go and engage in all the things that we know are are unhelpful or are perhaps sort of slightly unedifying. But at the same time, you know, sometimes there is a moment for a conversation, isn't there? And and that can only happen if we are willing to engage in the culture or whether that's the TV show or the, you know, the stand-up show. Um, so I, again, I think Paul held that tension really well of, you know, as Christians, it doesn't mean that we, you know, sort of keep our head under a blanket and only watch CBBS. Um, but actually that there's, you know, so that example he gave of, you know, going to an event that was meant to be a debate, which clearly wasn't. And actually that, yeah. that, that in itself isn't, you know, sometimes we do need, you know, he spoke about the whole idea of, you know, having a conversation with people, but genuinely listening to their point of view. Um, and again, yeah. I think that's something that we can all apply to our lives, whether we are a stand-up comedian, probably for most of us are not. Um, yeah, yeah I, I was also really intrigued by that part. I think we uh, we we have more than our dose of CBBs in <laughs> our house. And um, so I'd be delighted to have a little bit less of that. I think the great thing about Paul is he sort of, he's not, there's no sense of cliche to him no. so he I thought what I really appreciated was he so he was surprising you know he was not predictable um but very thoughtful and um I thought he gave a, a good account um of his own approach and the way he's tried to navigate um his way through 
on which note, Grace, what is your favourite comedy? Um, or or if, if not, programme on the BBC? No, no, now. very good question. I I have to say, I, me and my whole family, and I'm not just saying this because Paul was on the podcast, obviously he's gone now, so he, he wouldn't, he'll never know unless he listens back that I said this, but we have always been huge Miranda fans. Um, or, you know, very much one of those shows that actually, I don't know, if you're feeling a bit under the weather and you can just put, Miranda on and um yeah I feel like we've had many many a family Christmas waiting for the Miranda (laughs) Christmas special to come out and it is sort of you know fun for the whole family you know grandparents as well as little ones being able to watch it and they're not being um anything too risque on there so um yeah if I had to watch forward seeing you channel that channel more of Miranda Grace (laughs) How about you, Paul? What's your what's your kind of go to if you want yeah, a bit good, of a laugh? Uh, question. I well, so a classic from the past. So this obviously well before your time, Grace. Um, but it was in colour. Um, so um, yes, Minister. Yes, Prime Minister. Yeah, okay. Um, they, I think, are great. Uh, one of the reasons they are so brilliant um, is that they're timeless. Mm. And so, um, if you watch any of those uh, programmes today, it is as if it is a kind of commentary on what's going on politically in our time even though they're 70s and 80s um so yeah they're 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 something that i often go back to um i think really really clever and and really interesting i have to check check those out again you have a look on some i've some i've heard of i mean if they're in color that's i'll send you some suggestions okay send me some suggestions yeah Yeah. maybe the maybe the top one or two that i'd recommend and then you can tell tell us next time what you think i will oh no pressure now Um, well, on that note, um, if you enjoyed the episode of The Whole Life today, we'd love you um, to tune back in. Um, you can subscribe, you can leave a review um, and yeah, tell your friends about it. And we've got some really great guests coming up. Yes. And we look forward to seeing you next time on The Whole Life from Grace Fielding and from me, Paul Woolley. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>